So we did a lot of hijackers. It was a lot of fun. It was exciting. And Jimmy would give us tips. Okay, there's a truck coming out of El Al, which is Italian Airlines. They're going to have all the best garments coming to the U.S. Italian stuff was always in demand. So we'd hijack the truck. Uh, I would take the guys for a ride in a van, the two truck drivers. I'd give them some nice hamburgers, talk nice to them. And Tommy and Foxy would take the stuff to where Jimmy was, unload it. By later in the day, we'd already have a price on how much money we were going to get. It was very quick and very fast. So Jimmy was the most organized hijacker buyer of merchandise. And this was the early 70s. Hijacker was the 10 murderers I knew. I sort of created my own profile, like a professional profile. I studied these guys. I'm talking about guys like Roy DeMeo, a sick killer. John Canigli's brother, Charlie Caniglia, who killed people and put him in vats of acid. I knew these guys close and up front 50 years ago. And other guys that were killers and why they killed. I mean, some of them killed out of fear. Some killed for money. And then some killed, you know, to fit in and take orders from the boss. Okay. And I studied a lot of these guys. I, I was fascinated with why are these guys killing for other people? I didn't get that part until I started to put the pieces together, who they were and what were they about, you know. And when you know someone and you know their habits, and then you find out years later that they were killers, you start to figure out a profile what their reason was. Thanks for watching the podcast. Here's a word from our sponsor, Atlas VPN. Right now, I'm going to change my phone so that I am registered out of America. Let's go with Dallas, Texas, shall we? Just like that, I can now access everything online that our American friends can access, whereas previously I was blocked. And we've got the best VPN deal on the market. Enjoy the most affordable online protection for just $1.83 a month, which is just over a pound. And three months extra with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Protect unlimited devices. Atlas VPN protects all your devices with a single subscription. You can grab this summer deal now because Atlas VPN Premium is just $1.83 a month. Plus three months extra. And with a 30-day money-back guarantee, protect your privacy and get many benefits of Atlas VPN for the ridiculously low price. You can take this deal by clicking the link in the video description below on YouTube. Be quick as it's a limited time offer. Thanks for checking out our sponsor. Back to the podcast. All right. You are going to be going down a fascinating road of mafia stories today. I've got Sal from the Sonata Club movie, which many of you may have watched. He's got his own channel. Links will be in the description box to support these guys' work. And... He actually has stories of Michael Francis. I was watching on one of his videos. As many of you know, I hosted the Michael Francis show when he came to London and the UK. And he was the reception was fantastic. He, he had a lot of Goodfellas stories. And Sal has also had dealings with the main characters in Goodfellas, as well as the Gottis, John, Gene, etc. It is endless. Right. So, huge thank you for coming on, guys. Do you want to just... Say a little about yourself, bit about yourself to the viewers first, by way of introduction. Uh, either I can do some, or 
Adrian Ken. But, you know, I was sort of born into this thing. There was some years ago they did this National Geographic uh, American Mafia about 10 years ago. And as they uh, filmed it, then they said to producers, let's take you and Michael, because Michael was in there too, and we'll take you to Boston, we'll take you to Philadelphia, and you guys can have like a dinner, uh, you know, with the press, because they were promoting it. And I, the simple thing I said to Michael, I go, Michael, I'm only about eight years older than you. And what, what you might remember is your father and my uncle Barbie in the 60s when you were a little kid. And I said, you do realize you came from royalty and I came from the street. And we have an interesting POV. And we drove around the limousine for a couple of days, hit Boston, hit Philly. And I enjoyed talking with Michael because of the, uh, the journey that he had taken. I had actually met him probably in the 70s when he got made. A friend of mine was a friend of his, which was Dominic Cataldo. Little Dom, he was a killer, you know. And I knew Michael to be a young guy. I didn't know a lot about him. You see, in the 70s, Sean, each family kept their their family associates away from each other. That was the way of controlling. So I was with this Cataldo guy, which was, you know, Columbo's. And then, uh, you know, I had met John Gotti the month he came out of jail in 1972, but he was Gambino's. Now, none of these guys were made members then. And that's how long ago it was, 50 years. So I met some guys like the Tommy Simone character, which Joe Pesci played. I met mm -hmm. Tommy in 71, 72. And, uh, you know, he was from a different family. But we pulled off something that wasn't happening. We had a member from the Columbos, myself, a member from the Gambinos, which is Foxy Girodi. And a member from Lucchese's, which was Tommy, and they allowed, the mob guys allowed us to work together because we were fearless. We had balls like lions. We'd go rob <laughs> banks and trucks. We didn't give a shit, you know. I was a junkie for excitement. And that's what I needed to fill me up. <laughs> so we go back to the 70s. Uh, nobody knew who John Gotti was then. But, I mean, you could see he had this amazing personality. He was like a Pied Piper. But I didn't need to answer to him because I had to answer to the Columbos. And when Joe Colombo got shot, I actually got to meet the head of the family, which was a guy named Joe Pegleg Brancata. Huh. And that was my intro into the family of Columbos. But nobody talked about that stuff in those days with detail. It was very secretive. Yeah, a whole different time. Yeah, and Adrian here arrange this interview and your channel and all of your links will be in the description box as well adrian is there anything you'd like to say at this point yeah i would just like to say that thank you for having us on and me and sal we partnered up and we had started this podcast to get sal's story out there his life story and all that so we you know we cover his early life and everything like that and you know like we'll do on this interview as well but sal it's really interesting with sal is because he was around a lot of the guys that were that would go on to become you know bosses capos you know all, all kinds of crazy stuff but this was you know but when they were you know a lot younger and they weren't you know they were just an associate and stuff so that's why his story is really interesting i mean sal's a lot older than these guys that are out now talking we need to get uh, sal on a tour of the uk and, and take absolutely. him around to cities here yeah. oh, absolutely they love, they love the american mafia <laughs> 
Oh yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you remember Henry Hill. Oh, of course. Good, good fellows, yeah. Henry would go to the UK and come back because I, you know, him up until he died in June the 13th. He goes, Sal, you got to come over there with me. I fill up wherever they put me. I fill up the whole place. I go, what's the deal? He says, the UK love two things. I go, what's that? They love the American mafia and they like all Western stuff. I go, really? <laughs> yeah. He said, they love the American mafia. I said, okay, Henry. Maybe next year I'll go over there with you. At that point, I had uh, just finished uh, writing Sinatra Club, the book, and I was juggling for a television deal. Of course, 10 years ago, there was no Netflix, so it all changed. You know, everything changed. <laughs> but I always wanted to go there because I thought it would be great. That's so true, Sal, because growing up in England, my dad, you know, when I was a kid, all the movies he had me watch with him were Clint Eastwood Spaghetti Westerns, right. and then and then later on, like all the math. The Godfather is one of his all-time favorites. Right, right. So yeah. that brings me to the question then: Goodfellas. You know, you knew Burke and these characters. Oh. Was it an accurate representation? Okay, so what happened was um, in the fall of '71, I had got shot in the back by a cop, so I was laying low. And uh, Cataldo took me to this little place called the Bergen Hunt and Fish Club. That was John Gotti's hangout, but he was still in jail. So we went in there and I said, what a scurvy place. They got no style. Let's go rent the little building. We'll put matching furniture. Uh, we'll, you know, we can, in those days, we had to settle up the gambling debts on Monday night because that was when Monday night football, uh, you know, aired. So I went and I rented this little place. And on Monday nights, we would meet everybody who was gambling. We'd either pay them or they would pay us. And then while we were there, we had a guy who took numbers. You see, in the 70s, the mob still had a stranglehold on all types of gambling. Little did we know that along was going to come lottery. Along was going to come OTB, off-track betting. We had no clue that the mob was going to get knocked right out of the box for gambling because the state was smart, okay? So we started to play little cards, and maybe by January, February, when Gotti came out, he loved playing cards. He wasn't good, but he loved to gamble. And so he said, hey, look, I can get some guys that are coming out of the joint because he had just left Lewisburg. That was in 72. And, of course, in 72, um, let's see, there was – Jimmy Hoffa was there. Uh, all the old-time mob guys were there. So he started getting the young guys. Well, what the mob themselves didn't recognize in 72, the 50, 60-year-old guys, these young guys like me and Cataldo, we were coming up. We didn't give a crap about the mob rules. We were breaking them. We were dealing drugs. And we can buy and sell all those mob guys. Henry didn't give a crap. So as we opened up the Sinatra Club, uh, Henry came in. He wasn't there long because he went right to jail after that. And along came Jimmy Burke, who I was introduced to by Cataldo. And Cataldo says, hey, if you ever hijack a truck, this guy is a master. I go explain. He's got everything organized. It's amazing. You take the truck, you give it to him. Later that day, you go over there, he gives you a pile of money. I go, really? So, yeah, he's got all the best buyers, which were Jewish guys. And he's got the trucking outfits. You know, I mean... He had it set up. So it wasn't long before uh, we had a sit down and I was allowed to work with Foxy Girodi, which was John Gotti's. Um, he was mentored by Gotti. 
and I was allowed to work with Tommy DeSimone. The reason I got to know Tommy DeSimone is he went to high school with my wife. Really? He was two years younger than me. But he was, he was crazy as a bed bug. He really was, man. He was sniffing drugs. And, but he also had balls of a lion. If you showed him where the money was, he'd go through the wall to get it. So we became crime partners. What I taught those guys, they taught me about hijacking. I taught them about, about bank robbery. And the reason was, Sean, the mob didn't want you robbing banks. They didn't have anything to buy off you. <laughs> you hijacked the truck. They got the truck. They got the merchandise. And they said, you know what? We'll give you $2 each for each one of these sweaters. And they had you buy the balls. If you didn't take the $2, they said, okay, if you don't want the $2 after three days, we'll charge you 5000 a day storage. So they had you buy the balls, you know. So we did a lot of hijackers. It was a lot of fun. It was exciting. And Jimmy would give us tips. Okay, there's a truck coming out of El Al, which is Italian Airlines. They're going to have all the best garments coming to the U.S. Italian stuff was always in demand. So we'd hijack the truck. Uh, I would take the guys for a ride in a van, the two truck drivers. I'd give them some nice hamburgers, talk nice to them. And Tommy and Foxy would take the stuff to where Jimmy was, unload it. By later in the day, we'd already have a price on how much money we were going to get. It was very quick and very fast. So Jimmy was the most organized hijacker buyer of merchandise. And this was the early 70s. Hijacker was rampant at that time. It really was. That's how you made your money. I liked Jimmy. He was great. Years later, I knew his daughter, Kathy. Uh, I knew his son, uh, Frankie, who worked for me. He was a car thief. And then when we were in the penitentiary, like four or five years later, his wife and my wife would partner up and drive up to visit us. Her name was Mickey. Nice gal. So I knew Jimmy well. I liked him a lot. He was very smart. He really was smart and had balls of a line. He didn't. And that guy, Paulie, the old timer, he protected him. So Sal, you know, we've interviewed various people and some of them were born into it. Some of them earned their stripes through other means. Was it generational in your case? Well, my uncle was in and around it from like, you know, the 30s. Um, the reason I paired up with Cataldo was his father and my father knew each other in 1929. And they were driving a horse and wagon with booze on it from eastern Long Island. And they, they were rum runners. You know, they were young, 18-year-old kids, you know. So, yeah, it was very generational. You had to be recommended you know, like if you knew family, they, okay, he's okay, we can trust him. It was nothing uh, like it is today. You can't trust anybody. I mean, it's just different. It's a different. There's, there's no camaraderie. There's no loyalty. There's a lot of betrayal. I mean, you were in prison. You know, you hear the stories about who betrayed who. But the mob always had this mystique about him. People were afraid of mobs, you know, right? rightfully so. Yeah. Sean, I will add in um, Sal's father and his uncle were bootleggers for Joe Profacci, who was the boss of what would become the Colombo family. So, okay. and they were bootleggers. So, so Sal, as a kid then, did you look up to these characters? Absolutely. I mean, they, they were, uh, I would say the best picture was a Bronx tale. With Chaz Palmentieri. There he was, you know, 
I got to go to crap games, and he had this charisma. It oozed out, and the little guy just wanted to follow, wanted to follow Chaz Palmentieri, okay? In the meantime, the De Niro character, which was the father, didn't want his kid involved. It was interesting how they used that juxtaposition, Sean, of about the mob life and the straight life. And, you know, it was uh, a funny thing was years later, I should say years later, way back in 74, when I went to prison, I met the character that Chaz Palminteri created the movie about. A guy was called Fat Gigi, and he was from, uh, you know, about the uh, Purple Gang up in, in the Bronx. A lot, a lot of drug dealers. So he lived up there, and he used some of those characters, and they were... You know, they were bigger than life. And the guys were bigger than life. They had picky rings, fancy cars, nice clothing, and all the women wanted to be with gangsters. Did your parents want you to go on the straight path, Sal? Uh, yes and no. I didn't have a mother when I was a kid. Uh, and, and then in 65, when I was 20, my sister suddenly died from a pancreatitis. My brother drowned. And I was in a spin. I was in a terrible spin at 20 years old. So I was looking, I mean, much like I would say, you know, the era of the Manson era when people were looking for cults. I didn't realize the mob was a cult. So I, I gravitated to my uncle who, who ran a bar and a, and a hotel. And who was in that hotel running the mob stuff was Sonny Franzese. And I was a 20-year-old kid, so I saw him. I saw the mob guys in and out. You know, I had a picture of that life, and I thought it was glamorous. I really did. It took me years to figure out that it wasn't glamorous. But the excitement was always there. I think Sonny, didn't he serve a record amount of time? What was the respect for him like on the streets when he was out? Well, he was, an, oh, well, I never saw him out. He, he went to jail for 50 years with my uncle on a bank robbery charge. And uh, he fought that case all his, all his life. I think he was actually framed. It's my feeling because I knew who the drug users were, what the bank robbers, and they were really crappy guys. They weren't tough guys. So I think he had to fight that. They had a vendetta for him. I would think the best way to um, describe Sonny Franzese I mean, I'm sure you knew who, uh, um, what the hell was that guy, Scarpa was. You read about Scarpa, the Grim Reaper. Well, yep. read about what the government did with him. They took him to Alabama and had him threaten, you know, threaten guys to solve murder mysteries. Well, here you had a guy like Scarpa doing that. And then you had a guy like, tough guy like Franzese. He would never give in to the government. So they hated mm -hmm. him. They hated yeah. him. Uh, they tried to flip him. He was an old-fashioned yeah. tough guy. He was never going to give them a bit of information. Much like John Gotti, old-fashioned tough guy. Johnny, John Gotti would hurt himself and never admit he got hurt. That's who he was. I, I, I described him once as a quixotic guy. Okay? He was, uh, he was a brilliant manipulator, street smart. But he didn't really care about money. People brought him money. He cared about power. That's what his thing was. Power. I'm sure you saw some of the guys in jail that were Italian. Uh, and then you saw the Colombians. And they all had a structure. But back in the 70s and 80s, 
the mob always had the ultimate image of criminals. You you know that. Of course, I think all that's gone now. Yeah, even in Sheriff Joao jail, there was a brief time when the Italians took over from the Aryan Brotherhood, and oh. it was the best they, we ever had it. When they invited me to work out with them, I knew I was in, and um, Bruno, oh. one of their enforcers, contacted me. He saw one of my documentaries, and I've interviewed him six times on my channel. Great guy. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to understand the path that led you to looking up to these gangsters. I just want to go back even further, though. Was there ever a point in your lifestyle as a kid when you thought, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to be an astronaut, or when I grow up, I'm going to do this? Were you ever focused on the straight path as a very young person? I don't think I was ever focused on the straight path because, and the fun part of it is that when I flipped and went undercover for the feds on this judge that was corrupt, the night that I wore a wire, I went back to this table with a bunch of FBI and said, you know, it's in the book, you should have been an actor, man. You pulled off a great, you know, conclusion to our fix and i said to one agent he said what do you think about that i go you know it was the first time in my life i was 39 years old where i realized you could do something legal and get excited <laughs> i knew nothing about that i always thought well it's got to be illegal to get excited and the fbi agent sal you're going to be on a new path and i said you know what to this guy dan russo that i had met in 84 I'm never going to commit crime again. It's really, we look at your record. You could say that for sure. Never going to commit crime again. When I finish with the government, and that took some years, I'm going to figure out how to legitimately make money and see if I get the same excitement. He says, you're a junkie for excitement. That's what he said. I go, I never thought of myself like that. So I finally got the message that going straight could be fun and it would fill you up with excitement to do something legit. It took a long time. It did take a long time. So what were the first crimes you ever committed in your entire life? Well, I remember I was about maybe 10 or 12 years old, and I had this addiction to baseball cards. My uncle would take me to the Yankee games, and I always wanted to have a huge uh, Mickey Mantle collection, which I did, by the way. That's another story. One of these days I'll let go of. And I was playing, you know, Little League Baseball, and I found a wallet on the, on the floor in the locker room. And I just put it in my bag and took it home, went and found this money, which was maybe 80 or 100 bucks, which was a lot of money in those days in the 50s. So I threw away the ID and everything. I went and I spent all that money on baseball cards. And it was very exciting. And I realized that if you had money, you could do things that other people couldn't do. And that was like maybe when I was 10 or 12. Uh, after that, not too much crime, went to school, uh, and I went into the U.S. Marine Corps, and I got caught up uh, in the Marine Corps. Uh, I was only in there a couple of years. I picked up a bug, and they discharged me. I was pretty radical, though, and immediately I went to my uncle's hotel in the late, in the mid-60s, and that's where Sonny Francis was hanging out. That's where I got to meet other mob people. Okay, tell us a bit about why you joined the Marines. Well, 
I don't know. I mean, it was an image thing back when I was 18. I was 1963. I saw this guy who came home from boot camp and he talked all about how, you know, it was the best arm of the service and the Marine Corps was, you know, the best thing you could possibly do with your life. They'll set you up forever. And this was pre-Vietnam War. This was like a couple of years before they started sending Marines over to Vietnam. But I soon realized structure wasn't for me. And I got in trouble, got busted. They put me in the brig. Eventually, uh, I got a concussion. Uh, I got hit over the head with something on an exercise. And then, uh, inexplicably, I picked up a disease, a heart disease. And they cut me loose, discharged me. And after that, um, you know, I went back to Queens and got involved with my uncle who had a bookie, bookie operation, gambling. So and I like that. You, you said you got into trouble in the Marines. What lets you get into trouble in the Marines? Rebellion. You know, I didn't like taking orders. You know, I just, uh, it just wasn't for me structure. I wasn't good at structure, you know. I just didn't follow. I didn't follow the plan of, uh, you know, being in the military. So did you get in a physical altercation? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I got. And then I went AWOL. I ran away, went back. They put me in the brig and eventually they discharged me. Uh, I was sort of unsuitable. I mean, I got an honorable discharge, but I was I displayed radical behavior, really radical. You know, what, what was your life plan for when you got out? You know, I got out in May, and the following month, my sister, who was 21, she died suddenly. And I was 20. And then my brother drowned a few weeks later. I had no plans. So I was hanging out with, you know, I didn't do drugs. I was hanging out with thieves, you know, people that were into stealing, burglary. And I learned what was going on in the street. Uh, I listened to my uncle. Somehow I made a score in 1965. If you robbed twenty or $30,000, that was a lot of money. So I managed to pull off a bank scam by myself. I was always fascinated with, you know, paper crime. To me, it was interesting. I mean, eventually I liked using the gun for hijackings and armed robberies and bank robberies. That was really exciting. But I think I probably would, would have been uh, some type of a bank scammer if I didn't use a gun back when I was 20, I guess, 23, 24, 25. Sal, losing your siblings must have ripped your heart out. How did you deal with that trauma? Oh, uh, escape. No drugs, no alcohol. I was angered. I was a fighter in the street. I liked to fight. I didn't want to fight with, I was only 5'8", 160 pounds. I didn't want to fight with people my size. I want to fight with big guys. I was always challenged by that. So, you know, I got involved with my uncle and started to meet a lot of gamblers. And I could see there was money to be made in the late 60s doing that. And before I know it, my uncle went to jail on the same bank robbery charge as Sonny Francis. And then out came this guy who was really suave, older than me, this guy Cataldo. And I didn't know he was a Colombo hitman. So he taught me the ropes about gambling, eventually about hijacking. Uh, a, a good seven, eight years went by before he decided that, you know what, we like you. You participate in the murder and you'll get sponsored into the family. 
And I think uh, Adrian knew the story. I, mm -hmm. I was assigned to go dig a grave for a guy. And I went out to Long Island, dug this grave for eight hours, had blisters on my hands. I actually did a one-man show at the San Francisco Playhouse. I opened up an hour and 15-minute one-man show talking about digging a grave for somebody. I had to dig that grave. When I went back and I called Cataldo, I said, okay, you know, the resting place is ready. So, okay, we'll call you when this guy is ready to be picked up. They were going to kill this guy. All I had to do was pick him up, take him about 60 miles out to Long Island, to the Hamptons, and cover him up. And that was my participation in the murder. That's all you had to do in the 70s to get made. However, they missed the guy. They didn't kill him. So then a day later, Cataldo says, hey, let's have coffee. You better go out there and fill that grave up. I go, it took me eight hours to fill the, dig that grave. I got blisters on my hands. Look, the guy didn't show up, and you got to go fill the grave up. And if we need that grave again, you'll have to go dig it. I didn't say a word. I did that. Maybe a month or so later, he came to visit me. He said, oh, I said, what? I, I asked the question you were never supposed to ask. Whatever happened to the guy you were going to kill? By this time, he trusted me. He said, you know what? We just killed him the other day, and we couldn't call you. We dumped him in, behind a factory in Long Island City. He'll be found. And that was it. I never knew the guy's name, but I knew Cataldo was a killer. And that was just one of the guys he killed. I knew of others that he had killed. Right. And I think it's important, Sal, too, to include the names of the guys that were on that hit with Dominic Cataldo, because these guys would go on to be, you know, like Joe Messino was one of them. He became the boss of the Bonanno family. Yeah. And yeah. then uh, Tutti Francis, which was uh, Sonny Francis's nep nephew. Yeah. yeah. Well, Cataldo told me that he was working with Joe Messina, who I had met some years earlier. Uh, this happened in like 78. I wasn't paying attention to Joe Messina because he was the Bonanno guys. He was the subject of the movie, what was it again? Donnie Brasco. Oh, yes. Joe Messina, who later became a boss. Uh, so I really didn't know him that well, but I did know him pretty good. And then the nephew of uh, of uh, Sonny Francis was Tootie Francis. All these guys became main members down the road. But when I knew them, they weren't. They were struggling guys trying to make money in the mob. Sal, what was your first introduction to guns? Um, introduction to guns. Well, you always had to have guns when you were committing crimes. And in Queens, we always had a way of getting, getting guns because there was a lot of trade, you know, illicit trade. Uh, and... It was interesting because I had a bunch of guns, but I never used one. And the thing about it was, as I moved along the road in, in the mob, I discovered I didn't want to participate in murder. Down deep inside, I didn't think I had the right to take somebody's life. And one of these days, Adrian and I are going to do a profile. I mean, I could do this on stage. The 10 murderers I knew. I sort of created my own profile, like a professional profile. I studied these guys. I'm talking about guys like Roy DeMeo, a sick killer. I'm Carniglia. John Carniglia's brother, Charlie Carniglia, who killed mm -hmm. people and put them in vats of acid. I knew these guys 
close and up front 50 years ago and other guys that were killers and why they killed. I mean, some of them killed out of fear. Some killed for money. And then some killed, you know, to fit in and take orders from the boss. Okay. And I studied a lot of these guys. I, I was fascinated with why are these guys killing for other people? I didn't get that part until I started to put the pieces together, who they were and what were they about, you know. And when you know someone and you know their habits, and then you find out years later that they were killers, you start to figure out a profile, what their reason was. And I thought that was interesting, much like you've done with uh, Epstein. I mean, Did you become a made man because you, of your contribution to big, digging the hole? The truth is, after like I got to prison, and by the time I got out, I never once wanted to be a made guy. And here's the reason. Once you become a made man, you owe yourself to the family. In a moment of time, they can say, hey, come tomorrow night. And they kill you. You had to take orders. So I didn't take any orders from Gotti because I wasn't assigned to the Gambinos. And I didn't take orders from Cataldo, and I'll tell you why. Because we were inside the secret life. Then we had another secret inside that life, which was we were heroin dealers. And you weren't supposed to deal heroin in the 70s. And most of the public thinks, oh, the mob was cool. They um, didn't want their members dealing heroin. Well, guess why? Because the heads of the family were dealing it. They didn't want the competition. So I think we figured all, all that out. And no, I didn't want to be a made member. What was the purpose? I made more money than most of the wise guys. I mean, I was making 20, 30, 40,000 a week in the 70s. That was a bunch of money then. Just like whatever you did. You know, you know how much money was at a time. Today it might not be any money, twenty, thirty thousand a week, but fifty years ago you could do a lot with twenty, thirty thousand. Oh yeah. So, so Sal, what was your first gun crime? Um. Oh yeah, <laughs> a story I didn't tell Adrian. I was going out on a heist, and <clears throat> I didn't know it, but I had two NYPDs watching me for a gambling operation. And as I got in the car and drove a few blocks, they pulled me over. And they looked in the car and they found some gambling receipts, so they arrested me. When they finally dug into the trunk, they found a loaded nine millimeter. And that became a real problem for me because in those days, you could reach corrupt detectives, but you had to have money. So when I got out, Cataldo said, hey, look, um, you're going to have to pay off. I mean, the gun was loaded. They had you dead. They had you on a warrant for another crime. So, so it becomes a legal search and seizure. So what do you think we'll do? Well, we'll jack around until we can get, you got to probably pay off five, 10,000, which was a lot of money then. I said, okay. So we went to this capo. He was a crazy man. His name was Freddie Nonos. Delucia. He was older than Cataldo. And this guy was a madman killer. Okay? And he said, look, next week, 
I never told anybody this story. Next week, you come bring $5,000. Because I reached out to a captain. He's going to give this guy, Italian detective, the money. And they'll somehow they'll throw the case out. In a week, I had to get 5000 Totally impossible. Didn't have the 5000 Cataldo calls me and says, you better go see Freddie. He's hanging out at the bar. He's waiting for you. Now, I'm like 23 years old. I walk in there. He didn't say a word. He looked at me. He punched me in the jaw, broke my jaw. Okay? And he said, I don't care where you get it. Go get that money. You embarrassed me. I said, oh, my God. Well, I couldn't talk or eat for about a week. And I said to Catalba, man, what am I going to do? I don't have that 5000 He said, you may be off the hook. I go, why? Well, that Freddie No-Nos, and he had a partner called Sally D. They were, they were actually renegades in the Colombo family. They chopped those two guys up. They were trying to take over the whole family. And Cataldo told me, well... Don't worry about Freddie No-Nos. I go, why? He said, because you won't see him anymore. And that line, by the way, you won't see him anymore, was in The Godfather. And it was one of Gene Gotti's favorite lines about guys who got killed. You won't see him anymore. I go, how do you know? He said, I know. He did away with these two guys. So now I got a case pending, a felony, right? Loaded gun. What am I going to do? See, now I've been lucky all my life. It was like Clint Eastwood in that movie he did when he was, uh, what was it, the Un Unforgivable or something, Unforgiven or something. At the end, he told Gene Hackman, oh, I've been lucky all my life, killing. I'm hanging out, and Cataldo calls me, get the Daily News. I go, where are you? So I'm in the bathroom reading it at home. Get the Daily News, look at page seven or whatever. I go, why? Just go get the news. Thank you for watching the podcast. Here's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money. Don't you hate it when you've got subscriptions out there that you don't know about, taking all that cash out of your account? I recently found out I had four Amazon Prime subscriptions, now I've got it down to one. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. Most people think they're spending $80 on their subscriptions, when in reality the number is closer to $200. When you're signed up for so many things like streaming services you used to watch one show or free trials for delivery you don't use, it's so easy to lose track of what you're paying for. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions and manage your money the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N, that's rocketmoney.com, S-H-A-U-N, rocketmoney.com slash Sean. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. Link is in the description box on YouTube. Back to the podcast. I go, I pick up the news, and the guy's name, I'll never forget it, that arrested me, his name was Pocconi. And I go, oh, my God, I call Cataldo back. This guy Pocconi arrested a rape suspect. And the guy, Pocconi, was booking him, like fingerprinting him. And the guy grabbed Pocconi's partner's gun and killed Pocconi, the detective, right in the precinct. Dead, wow. killed him dead. Then the, um, the partner killed the rep rape suspect. I said to Cataldo, he said, you know what? You stepped on shit, man. 
there goes the case. They're going to throw out the gun charge. And they had to because he was a wrestling officer. So wow. along the way, I was always pretty lucky with stuff. I mean, who the heck would think that the arresting officer would get killed by a rape suspect, you know? No. So, I, you know, I had cases like that where I had to fight them, you know, and things happen. And I mean, in those days, you could pay off cops. You could pay off a lot of people. But, you know, there's always a way. As long as you didn't, like, blatantly kill somebody with witnesses, you could get away with anything in New York City for the longest time. And New York was so corrupt, really. What was the biggest heist you did, Sal? Oh, now that's a fun one. <laughs> <laughs> that guy, Cataldo, was a character. Somehow he got information on a truck. Every two weeks, the truck would leave Kennedy Airport. I don't know if you know New York City at all. Not Never at all. Never been. Never been. Okay. Well, there's a street. They call it The Street. It's a jewelry exchange street. And this truck would go from Kennedy Airport to The Street, and it would be loaded with rare watches. So somehow, Cataldo got a, a line on this hijacking. So him and two guys, they go hijack the truck. Well, the funny part of it is, at that point, nobody knew that there was like an informer around the neighborhood. And I'll tell you right out who it was, because we found out years later. You know the story about who Willie Boy Johnson was, right? John yeah. Gotti's informant. So Willie Boy gives the information, and... Uh, the uh, local authorities arrest Cataldo and two others. And the corrupt attorney we had, he was my attorney, actually before John Gotti's attorney, somehow he managed to make a fix. And he said to the, to the detectives, look, there's a chance I can get the merchandise and return it. Well, this was much like, uh, much like the movie that what was his name did uh, Steve McQueen when he hijacked the truck full of money or they robbed the Federal Reserve the insurance company was in control of the case like Lloyd's of London insurance and so they said look if Cataldo he didn't say Cataldo if your guys give the merchandise back a couple of million of watches we'll just we'll just discharge the we won't we won't charge him with robbery so uh, the attorney gets a hold of Cataldo, load the truck up with watches and give it to me, and I'll take it to the courthouse. We'll park it there. It's okay, but before Cataldo gives him the truck, he pilferages in there, takes like a couple of hundred thousand dollars worth of watches, gives him the truck. The truck is sitting out there outside in front of the Queen's criminal court. Along come the two detectives that were involved with the insurance company, they pick up the truck, take it a few blocks. They got another guy behind them. They pilfered the truck and take $100,000 worth of watches. And in the meantime, the insurance company got some of the stuff back, but there was no charge. Now, that happened to be in 1969. Somehow I got to talking with Cataldo about, about those watches. I go, where'd those watches come from? So, oh, there was a freight forwarder's named Pomerantz. I go, really? Now, I had been partners with Foxy, and we have been doing really sophisticated hijackings. So I said to Foxy one day, you know what? There's a company here in at the airport. 
can we get inside the airport, the sort of sectioned off security section, and watch these this truck leave there every week? Yeah, he says, I got a cousin of mine, you can get us papers and we can drive a truck in there and we can sit in the truck and we can clock, clock them, see what's going on. Okay, so we're watching, we're watching, we see everything. I go back and tell Cataldo, we're going to do one better than you. We're not going to hijack the truck. We're going to take a truck driving to the airport. We're going to take over the whole, the whole forwarding uh, company and we're going to load the truck up with watches. He says, you got to be kidding. So he says, who are you going to do with? Me and Foxy said, we're going to take Gene Gotti with us. And another guy, a former drug dealer, a hitman that was well-known from the Bronx. Gene Gotti goes back and tells his brother, goes, that crazy Sal, they call him Obats, he's crazy. He's going to get you killed. Don't dare go into the airport and be there. He'll never pull that thing off. So Gene says, nah, I'm not going to do it. Well, a few weeks later, I figured out all the tricks and how we were going to do it. We drive right in, back up to the terminal, and we load 56,000 watches, all coming from Switzerland, many of them gold watches, Omega. Now, this is 1973. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, 1974. Gold is only $60 an ounce, 56,000 watches. So the agreement was, when we get the watches, we got to take it somewhere and stash it. So I had a friend, he had an uncle who had a funeral parlor way out in Long Island. So we'll drive out there, we'll put him in the funeral parlor, you know, in the basement where there's a couple of dead bodies. Nobody's going to go down there looking. So sure as hell, we pull it off. We get the stuff out there. Now we're dividing it all up. We're getting about four of us. 14,000 watches each. So I get all the samples and I go to Foxy, look, you got to have one of each, write down the numbers. You make a list, give it to your guy, John Gotti. I'll make a list, I give it to Cataldo, right? And this other guy, he'll make a list and he'll give it to Jimmy Burke. In the meantime, I had started to smell something about this, this deal about selling it to these guys. So the list that I made was different from the list that Foxy and this other guy, Charlie, made. My list consisted of like a couple of thousand watches I didn't add on the list. So I give the list. Uh, anyway, Foxy takes his watches, takes them, sells them to Gotti. Uh, this guy, Charlie, sells them to Jimmy Burke. And they got about six or 80,000 each. I wasn't happy about that. And I knew better. They were rip getting ripped off. So I stashed my watches because I was dealing drugs and nobody knew it. I didn't need the six or 80,000. About a month or two goes by and Cataldo says, when are you going to sell those watches? I says, oh, you know, I sold a few of them. He's, well, I want to get, get the whole load. That's a lot of money there. And in the meantime, right about before I decided to sell the watches, the attorney came to us and said, you know, Lloyds of London knows you have these watches. I go, how could that be? Again, we didn't know who the informant was. It was Willie Boyd Johnson. But I had stashed it in a far-off relative's basement. Well, one day I said to Cataldo, okay, bring your buyer over. And what I did is I took about 2,000 expensive watches <coughs> and didn't include them. 
I go, are you sure you didn't get with Gotti and Jimmy and come up with a little price fixing? He said, oh, no, no, we wouldn't do that. So they took 60000 each. When I finally gave Cataldo the word that I would take his offer, he gave me 75000 but I had 2,000 gold watches that wasn't included. And then when he got the word back from the buyer, because he had the list from Gotti, he compared the two lists. Those who bought, where's the other watches? I go, what other watches? I gave you the list of all the watches I wanted to sell. And you said you wanted to buy them. He said, yeah, but what happened to the R-A-D-O, Rado Gold Watches? And in those days, those watches like 100, 200, 300 each. Today, they're thousands of dollars. I said, I kept a couple. He said, how many did you keep? What's the difference? You don't want them. And I buried them. And I had them for years. I was selling them. I got 10 times the money. I realized every time the mob would buy something off you, they would try to fix the price with the other crime partners. So I was ahead of them. And eventually I'll tell a story about a John Gotti swindle that I got into, which was fun. But you had to be on top of these guys. They came with the A-game. And I knew about this stuff. So... Eventually, Cataldo really didn't care. He only cared about the drug dealing. And I would stash his heroin. I'd have 10, 15 kilos of heroin buried in a secret apartment. And that's all he cared about. He didn't care about heist. He was beyond the heist. By this time, all he was doing was killing people for the family, for Carmine Persico, and, and then dealing drugs. And that was it. But I learned the hard way about all the scammers. I mean, so many. I mean, if you were out in the street, you'd learn that stuff. And these are stories most people never heard. Yeah. Sal, did any heists go wrong? Have you got any stories of challenges you had? Um, yeah, I told, mm-hmm. I told Adrian about one. You know, we did so many hijackings. I said to Fox, you get any information this week? Now, Jimmy Burke had people placed all over the airport. Oh, yeah. He says, there's an Italian shipment coming into El Al. He goes, probably be exotic shoes. Okay. So we get the information. Okay, we spot the truck. Okay, let's go hijack this truck. So we go hijack the truck. And our system was Foxy and I would go up front, rob the driver. Then Foxy would take the truck to where Jimmy Burke was in the factory, drive it in and unload it. I'd take the driver, sometimes two drivers. I'd take them around New York City, get them a nice sandwich, Give them a drink, you know, talk to them like they did in Goodfellas. I give them a little cash to keep them happy and say, hey, you didn't get heisted by two white guys. Two black guys did it, you know. So after three or four hours, I'd call. They said, okay, it's unloaded. We got rid of the truck. Drop off those hostages and come and come to the to drop. They called it the drop where you dropped off all the merchandise. I get over there and Jimmy's scratching his head. He goes, I'm sorry about this score. I go, what do you mean? Got beautiful shoes. They're all Italian shoes. There's thousands of pairs. He goes, so what's the problem? He's go, look. They had them laid out, the samples on a table. I go, that's weird. They're all lefts. He's the Italians got smart. They put all the left in one truck shipment, and the rights were going to go the following week to the other truck shipment. So... You know, we had to throw we had to throw that stuff away. Oh. We just laughed about it. I mean, funny stuff happens when you're robbing. I mean, you never know what you're going to come up with. You know, yeah, 
We had funny stuff happen. We did Fur Heist. We did Diamond Heist. Eh, most of it's in Sinatra Club, you know. Uh, there was always a way to make money with insurance companies back in those days because they didn't share information. What the public doesn't know way back 40 years ago, one insurance company never told the other insurance company. They never shared information. NYPD didn't share information with the FBI. They were very secretive about that kind of stuff. You would have a, the way I heard it, because I was never really involved on the street with informants, but like the Donnie Brasco thing, you know, like the FBI would have an informant and maybe a few minutes away in another area of New York City to be a DEA informant. And eventually they were both trying to buy drugs. They would buy drugs of each other. And it was not even, not even a drug bust. So, I mean, you know, funny stuff happen you get to laugh about it how dumb could you be you know so, my god that's hilarious yeah yeah so, so sal you said you were against the murdering of people yeah in that in that lifestyle there's a lot of violence what what was the most violence you encountered oh i was a fighter i love to fight uh i was run over by a crazy drug dealer another crazy story it's in the book and he tried to kill me because i had better drugs on the street than he did but i didn't make myself known to that somehow he happened to find out and this was the time when frank lucas you remember him frank lucas stamped his drugs it had a little trademark well we didn't do that we just you know we had a certain packaging and i would change the packaging every once in a while and the thing about heroin was you know Guys would be using heroin, they'd get hooked on the good stuff. Then if they were using, you know, altered or watered down heroin, they wouldn't even get high. So this guy was selling garbage and I was selling good stuff. So he wanted me eliminated. So he drove up to where my, I had a foreign car auto parts business and he ran over me with a big Buick and broke my ribs. We got out, we had a fight. And Sal, Sal, slow down, slow down. This is quite a thing I'm hearing here. <laughs> so where were you when he ran over you and where did it hit you? Okay, I had I had a a Corvette sports car shop. And in New York you have the elevated train. So my building was under the train. So I didn't see this car coming. I was, you know, dressed in Armani, wearing a pinky ring and a PJ watch. And all of a sudden, this car jumps up on the sidewalk and runs me over. I'm under the car. I get out from under the car, and I see this guy. I didn't even know who he was in the beginning. Then later on, I realized it's another outrageous storyline. I mean, it's something for the movies. So we start fighting, and I got nine guys working in my auto body shop, and this guy was a savage. He was a big guy, probably 240 pounds. Whatever drugs he took, he was high as a kite. A guy threw me a tire iron. I was beating him over the head with this tire iron. I couldn't knock him out. And, and I was 210 pounds then. You look at my book, you'll see what I look like. I was a bit of a savage. I'm beating him and beating him. And all of a sudden, up above at the train station, uh, a New York City um, transit authority spots us fighting. And he's on a radio. Well, what I didn't know was the guy that ran me over had gone to a gas station and stolen gas. And they were looking for him, and they had a description of the car. 
So as we're fighting, we get out from, you know, from the street and he points the gun at us. He goes, step aside, move to the wall. So I moved to the wall because I didn't do anything. I was in a fight. And this guy who had robbed the gasoline runs around the corner. As he runs around the corner, we hear more cars. And what happened was NYPD went down this alley to arrest him. He picked up an iron bar to attack a cop. And they shot and killed him. This all happened in like 10 minutes. So now my ribs are broken. They take me to the hospital. Um, I get out the next day and I find out what happened about this guy and who he was. His name was Carmine the Tail. I guess he had a tail on the back of his butt. And what happened was when they did the autopsy, the family wanted to sue because the cops said, we never touched this guy, which they didn't. They were a block away from me. And they didn't know what I did was I beat the crap out of the guy and fractured his skull. So <clears throat> what happened was the attorney came to me and says, you know what? Um, NYPD wants you to testify in a court hearing. They're being charged with um, police brutality after they shot and killed this guy, Carmine. I go, what am I going to do? He's, well, you told the story to Dominic that you beat the crap out of the guy with a tire iron, and he had a fractured skull in five places. And the police said they never touched him. So what is that going to do? Well, if you go testify at the grand jury, the brass and NYPD says, we'll give the guys in Queens a pass. Nobody will do anything for like six months to a year. We just don't want the family suing us for $3 because we never touched the cop. Well, they never did. So I went and testified, and they threw the case out against the family. Once the family realized I had beat them up with a thyroid, they realized the cops never touched them. They just killed them for attacking another police officer. So these are all crazy things that happen in, in the life. I mean, you never know what was going to happen in the course of a day. Well, because of that incident, Cataldo and I, we were like free as a bird for six months. They didn't even bother us, you know, because we had other crimes we were committing. We were committing crimes every day, loan shocking, bookmaking, stolen merchandise. I had stolen cars. I mean, if you were to read one of the books I wrote, I stole more cars. I took them apart faster than, than Detroit put them together in the stolen car operation. And of course, I sold them to John Coniglia. I sold them to um, that crazy, what was his name again? Roy DeMeo. Roy DeMeo. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. That's a real crazy, if you ever read about what he did. A lot of bad stuff. Yeah. And he was in, he was in control of the Iceman. I mean, when you read that stuff, you go, I can't believe this guy controlled the Iceman. And if you ever saw the Iceman documentary, that's how pervasive crime was in New York and the mob. Because we got away with stuff. I mean, stuff that came out, Sean, when they did those mafia cops, the two guys that were convicted years later, the two mob guys, they were detectives and they admitted to, well, they didn't admit, they convicted them of killing innocent people. So, yeah, the, the, the city of New York was all mobbed up. I mean, it was, and if you look at Fear City, how the, how the mob guys controlled New York City back in the day, you could understand it. Uh, I told Sean, I did an interview last year. They got a new Fear City coming out. 
and I talk about what it was like in the 70s, the early 70s, because most of the guys had their hand out. Cops were corrupt. I don't know how it is today, but always something happening. (laughs) Sal, for the people in the British over here, a lot of them maybe not familiar with Roy DeMeo, could you just explain who he was and what it was like meeting him? Yeah, he's one of those 10 killers that I want to profile because a lot of these guys, Sean, if you met them, and you went to a wedding or a birthday party. You'd sit there and talk to them like, geez, they were really nice guys, well-dressed. They were polite. They had charismatic personalities, okay? Well, Roy DeMeo, he, um, he had several businesses. I mean, he had a drug business. He had a stolen car business. And he had a bar called Gemini Lounge in Brooklyn. And he did so many killings that he, they would bring these guys in, they would kill them, then take them in the back and drain their blood and chop up the bodies and dispose of them. Well, he was such a vicious killer that when it came time for Gambino himself, I'm sorry, not Gambino, Castellano, when it came time for Castellano to put the hit out on him, Gotti refused to do the hit. That's how dangerous this guy was. Very dangerous guy. And um, the son... I think the son wrote a book. You probably could get some info on it. But a lot of people, they knew who Roy DeMeo was. He Mm -hmm. was a crazed guy. He had a huge stolen car uh, parts business. And he would buy parts off me and other people that were dismantling cars. And he would ship them over to Europe. And, uh, you know, made a lot, a lot of money with that. But the extent of his criminality was vast. But a lot of killings. And some of the stuff he did, I think, got to him. He killed innocent people. So you get a chance you could read about him. We might talk about him again. I think the people in the UK would be fascinated if I could just get over there and you could interview me on stage about the 10 most prolific murderers that I knew. You wouldn't even know they were murderers. No. They were were kind. They were gentle. They would sit there and go to a party. Later that night, they'd kill somebody and chop up their bodies. I mean, Cataldo was one of them. I don't think John Gotti was in that vein. He liked other people who killed for him. Like, it was a guy like Tony Roach that I knew. A lot of the guys that he had working for him, they were stone-cold killers. I mean, they were bad guys, you know. But they also had a certain affinity for him. They respected Gotti because he saw he saw the bigger picture. He wanted to be the head of the head of the mob, you know. And I had a lot of uh, experiences with some of the stuff that Gotti was involved in. And one of these days, I'll talk about one of the first computer crimes I got involved in. Gotti was involved in. He just didn't have the savvy on how to create that into money. But we'll talk about that. that's a whole whole show just that one. I'm sure. Yeah, we had. We had a guy on called Kevin Marr, who was a wheelman for some of the corpses for DeMeo. And last week, they just went in the river and and uh, they went down there with cameras and, and they've excavated the cars and bones from some of the victims. Wow. Yeah. And he was he was describing um, Roy DeMeo. When you first encountered Roy DeMeo, what was he like? I mean, did he just seem like a normal person? Just seemed like a guy in the car business. And his focus was 
automobiles. I need four Cadillacs. I need uh, three Chevys. I need four Fords. And we would dismantle them and give them the front of the car. And I'd sell them for four or five hundred. He'd probably get a thousand. So everything I sold him, he doubled his money. I had no clue on the extent of his criminality and his his reach, you know, with, with the young guys that he was dealing with. It, I was fascinated when I read about it because I had gone and left New York when they started to expose who he really was. A lot of dirt came out. It took years for the authorities to get information about him. Who was the biggest figures in the mafia that you encountered? Um, the biggest, I mean, it all changed. You know, I, I sort of left that life 1981, 82. I sold a lot of drugs. I took about a million dollars. I went a hundred miles up state New York and built a racetrack. So I got away from them because I knew I could see the destruction coming. And a lot of guys were facing long prison terms and they flipped, you know, it was, it was the year of the flip that when Henry flipped, it was the beginning, the beginning of it. And, you know, I, I didn't know uh, who, how far um, Joe Messina was going to go. I didn't realize he was going to be the head of a family. I just didn't see him like that. And there was another guy I had met in the late 60s, became the head of Lucchese's for a while, a guy named Joe DeFiti. He was not a tough guy. And the total, the total joke to me was that Peter Gotti became the head of the family. When I knew Peter Gotti in the 70s, he was the garbage man for New York City sanitation. So I was sort of shocked with some of those guys, the rise, and you know how they got to where they managed to be. Uh, mostly, I don't know, mostly through some type of strange you know, occurrences did these mob guys rise to a level. Gotti, there was no doubt about. I mean, he had a huge personality. He really did. Yeah, I mean, Sal got to meet four of the five bosses of the New York families. Like he said, he met uh, Joe Messino, who would go on to be the boss, uh, Joe DeFiti for the Lucchese's, and then Joe Brancato, who was already the boss, and then uh, – Yeah. Yeah, which one am I missing? I, I said Joe Brancato, Joe Messina, oh, John Gotti and Peter Gotti, who would yeah. go on for the Gambinos, but not yeah. the Genovese, but four of the five still. No, I didn't associate with the, the Genovese guys. You got to know that in the 70s, the mob kept everybody separate. That was the way of them controlling you. And, uh, you know, there were so many new guys coming in. I think what happened was, Sean, the Italians themselves devalued the mob because a lot of the guys who were drug dealers were giving mob guys money to get them made. So they didn't have to do anything but give money. And I think that's one of the things that changed the structure of organized crime. With the Genovese then, what did you hear about the chin hitting back against <laughs> after Castellano was taken out? I didn't, uh, I was gone by then. I had gone in the program uh, in the summer of 85 before Gotti whacked out Castellano. As far as I knew with the Genovese guys, I didn't know Tony Salerno. I think that Sammy the Bull might have knew them. Now, you did an interview with him, right? 
No, we've just done a 90-minute documentary with him. I've not met him because I can't go to America and he can't come here. Um, <laughs> but that documentary is coming out in August on a big network in America. Cool. It's, it's, it's going to be quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was involved. I think Sammy was smart enough to make John Gotti a lot of money uh, during the construction era where everybody had to pay for the cement. And if you read up on that, I truly think that Donald Trump was involved in paying off the mob. But I think he did one one thing that was smart. In the movie The Godfather, when they had a Senate hearing, they had a guy testifying and he said... Thanks for watching our podcast. This is a word from our sponsor, Shopify. I feel like I'm missing out because everyone is starting a side hustle or their own business these days. And you know what they're hearing a lot? That's the sound of another sale on Shopify. The all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Are you selling books or events like us? Shopify simplifies selling online and in person so you can successfully grow your business. Shopify covers all your sales channels from a shopfront-ready POS system to its all-in-one e-commerce platform. Shopify even gets you selling across social media marketplaces like Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Full of the industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without learning new skills in design or coding. And thanks to 24-7 help and with an extensive business course library, Shopify is ready to support your success every step of the way. Look, there's so many options out there to expand your business these days. And what's lovely about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify will be there to empower you with the confidence and control to take your business to the next level. It's time to get serious about selling and get Shopify today. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.co.uk forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N, all lowercase. Go to shopify.co.uk slash Sean to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.co.uk forward slash Sean. That's the word from our sponsor. Thanks for watching. Link in description. Back to the podcast. It's something about a buffer. Some buffers like, and I think between Trump and the mob, there had to be buffers where he never once spoke to mob guys. Well, maybe he did. I don't know. But he was pretty clever with it. I think eventually a lot of this stuff will come out, just like the research that you do when you find interesting tidbits of criminality with with political you know, figures. And I gave the government information in 1984. They could not take the information. They were scared to death that I gave them information. They didn't have the balls to follow up. And I told them about Cataldo and I paying off a U.S. senator. He later became a U.S. senator. We paid him off before the election. And he, uh, I mean, I'd really like to give you the details about this guy. And he, uh, God, he pulled a lot of tricks. He managed, he actually testified 
for a couple of mob people while he was a senator. Hmm. Wow. And what I didn't know was that I told somebody the story in 1992. And CBS came to California when I was in the program. And then it did a big, long interview about this senator who was a powerful guy. His name was Senator Alphonse D'Amato. And I used to go to fundraisers, and Cataldo and I were instructed to bring only $100 bills and put them in an envelope and give them to somebody who would pass it on to the senator. Well, what I didn't know, and that was like, I believe it was the fall of 80, that was the election in November then, was that eventually when he became a senator, he was going to do something special for my attorney, whose name was Michael Coriel, who wound up getting convicted with Gotti and going to jail. He stood up, tough guy. And the thing that the model was going to do, he was going to push for an SBA loan for some friends of mine who needed a boat. They wanted a big, huge fishing boat. They were not going to go fishing. They were going out to the ocean 30, 40 miles to pick up shipments of heroin from Europe. And the boat, would, the loan was authorized and they got this boat. Well, for years, the model, and that was in 1980. So in 1984, when I met with the government about this corrupt judge, I said, oh, by the way, they want to know everything. So one day I sat down with this assistant U.S. attorney and I told her about this senator. <coughs> it wasn't long after that that uh, the word came back that they don't want to hear about this senator. Why didn't they want to hear about the senator? Because the senator, when he was elected, had the authority to recommend a judgeship, a federal judgeship. And inside the second circuit, circuit in Brooklyn. And who was recommended was the U.S. attorney above the U.S. attorney I was dealing with. And when they found out that information, they said, bury that. That guy was elected to be a U.S. attorney, to be a judge. Until this day, he's the head of the Brooklyn federal court system, Judge Deary. And what was that? 39 years ago, I told them how corrupt the senator was. And I went as far as showing the government that I needed a special appearance in 1982. This was like, you know, while that senator had been elected, he was sitting senator. And I took his brother, who was an attorney, and I went to federal court and I had his brother. His name was... Armand, Armand D'Amato, represent me. I had him represent me before this federal judge who D'Amato had recommended for a, a circuit judge. And we needed a favorable decision that I didn't get violated and go to jail. So the judge gave me the favorable decision. Out I went, and eventually I paid off the criminal case I had in Queens, and everything just simmered away. And that judge wasn't corrupt. He just did a favor. That's all those political favors that took place 
30, 40, 50 years ago. And when you keep digging and you look and see how corrupt the Democrats were in New York City, you couldn't take a dump without them. <laughs> okay? So there was a lot of corruption from the bottom up. I didn't even tell Adrian these stories. No, I ain't never got around to them. Oh. Sal, are you saying that the politicians used the mafia as a front to profit off the drugs business? In a way, sure. They gave them favorable opinions. If you're to go read about Senator Alphonse D'Amato, that he appeared, he appeared at a parole violation for a Lucchese guy. And he, he, gave, he gave his character witness, oh, no, this is a good guy. You know, don't violate him. And the guy's violation didn't go ahead. He was a U.S. senator. He, he had this juice. I mean, when you read about it, you go, what? How did this happen? And it did happen. A lot of influence, peddling influence. Why did you get out of the lifestyle, Sal? Oh, because everybody was killing each other. They were all killing each other. And the rules that I was introduced to in like the late 60s and 70s, they threw that out. They started killing for money. The mob guys weren't supposed to kill for money. They were supposed to kill for honor, like a favor. You weren't supposed to take money. Once they started killing for money, Sean, it all changed. I could sit there in a theater in London and explain completely in a great deal of specificity, how the American mob failed from within. And that's how it happened. No more character, no more trust, no honesty, no honor among thieves anymore. It was all about greed. It's not much different than Wall Street, the movie. All about greed. Was it easy to get out? Uh, for me, there was a, there was a trade-off. Once I stopped being involved in crime, I didn't have that juice. I didn't have that sense of excitement anymore. I had to find something else. So there were several things I did. The government utilized me for a while, taking me around the country, speaking uh, at FBI conferences, about how I went undercover for the feds and all. There was a little bit of a rush there. I enjoyed that, but I needed to find something else. And what I thought was, I'll just go to Hollywood. That'll be easy. <laughs> Not. Hollywood robs you with a pencil. Yeah, while Bob robs you, robs you with a gun. <laughs> so you better have an attorney in Hollywood. I mean, I had a lot of funny things happen uh, in, in Hollywood. But... You know, I don't remember. I don't remember if you uh, watched the movie with John Travolta when he played uh, he played a mobster from Florida, and uh, it was a funny kind of a scam. What did they call that movie? I think I told you, Adrian. Blue Haven. No, not Blue Haven. No, it was another uh -huh. movie. Um, I can't think of it, but he was a gangster, and he went to Hollywood and fitted in with the Hollywood people. Yeah, uh, I can't think of the name of it. I it was based off a true story, though, right? Yeah, it was yeah. based. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting. I mean, guys have left the life. I mean, look at how well Michael's done. Yeah. Michael's Michael Franzese is a clean cut guy. I don't think he was ever involved in sleaziness. You know, I mean, he did 
He did gasoline scams. Great way to make money. Take the money from the government. I thought so it was clever. Not many people, you know, get as far as having a book published and a movie about their life. How right. did you achieve that? Was it a lot of hard work? Well, you know, I was blessed. I was lucky to meet really talented guys. Around 1989, 90, I'm in L.A., and I rent this apartment to this little old guy. And I come to find out he was a famous writer. I said to him, why are you in L.A.? He said, oh, I can't deal with New York anymore. And my sister's here, my family's here. I said, what did you write? He wrote Raging Bull, Mean Streets, New York, New York, okay? He wrote a lot of screenplays, and he worked as a partner with Scorsese. So I sat down with him and started telling some stories. And he said, well, maybe uh, maybe guy can help you learn how to write a script. I go, okay. And at that point, it was 89, 90, I had found exciting things to do. I'm telling you. I used to go, do you know California well? Yeah, I used to go to California a lot. Okay, so I was in the valley. I would go over the hill. And I would buy computers when they first got popular. I'd buy them for two or three hundred, bring them back to the valley, tack on a hundred or two, and sell and make money. I could do this four or five times a week. So I said to this guy, Mardik, Mardik, his name was Mardik Martin. I go, I'll tell you what, you don't have a computer. He said, Oh, no, I write like Neil Simon. I go, What? I write on a legal pad and I give it to a stenographer. You know, that's nonsense. They got software now. It's it's great stuff. You know, this is 89 where any really a lot of people didn't know about software, especially screenwriting software. So I said to him, look, I'll teach you how to use the computer. Teach me how to write structure. My problem was I could tell a lot of stories, but I'd be waving in and out and jumping around from here to here. No different than I am today telling stories. <laughs> it's okay. He said, I'll sit down. I'll show you what we do. We do an outline. This is what happens in the first 30 minutes. This is what happens in the next 60 minutes. And by the 90th minute, you better have a close on the movie, the third act, and it's got to be structured. Structure is the most important thing. I said, well, what did you do? He said, well, that's what I had to do with Scorsese. Scorsese is a little bit like you. He's a little harebrained. He goes, but I did the structure. He said, like an architect. Okay, so he got a computer. I taught him how to use the computer, right? And he was showing me how to write the structure of a film. So we did this two or three, four times. The book that I had first uh, appeared in was called Sins of the Father. That was written about me and my kids. He liked that story. So I told him a bunch of stories. Before you know, we had a script. You know, he said, okay, let's do another one. He said, but, you know, this is what we call spec. I go, what's spec? Because I didn't know anything about writing and getting money. He says, I'd like to get a contract. We could write something really cool. I go, so who do you know? I said, he said, I know this one guy. He's done four or five Jack Nicholson movies. I go, really? So if I go in, we used to sniff coke together years ago. He goes, if I go in and I pitch him on a movie, or he said to come visit him, he's got a concept for a movie for John claude Van Damme. I go, this is like 1990, right? Okay, so what do we got to do? He says, look, you come in with me. Don't say a word. I'll pitch him that we'll do a script for him. 
and I'll see if I can get an advance because this was like the end of the advances for screenwriters, like well-known ones. So we might be able to get 20, 30, 40,000. So I go into this meeting with him and I'm sitting there and this guy's skinny guy, you know, I didn't realize he had directed like a half a dozen movies, like, and, and he tells, he tells uh, Marduk that, look, I got this idea for a, for a film about a criminal and he sucks kids in. He turns, turns them out to be criminals and he controls them. And he goes, uh, can you write that? Well, Marduk didn't know anything about kids. He never was married, didn't have any kids, didn't know anything about a computer. He just knew about story structure. So I sat there and, and then he said, I'll go out to the car and uh, I'll be out in a minute. Whatever happened, he talked to him. He said, look, we need cash to do this. He said, well, give me a few, a few days. I guess he had a studio that would authorize payment for a script on spec. But it really wasn't spec. He was going to pay us. So I go out and Mark comes out. He says, you know, this guy, he's done all, look at, look at all the movies. You see that stuff on his wall? He did three or four movies with, uh, with Jack Nicholson. I go, really? Well, anyway, the guy turned it out turned out to be a real deal, a famous director, and we wrote a script and we got forty thousand. So that was my first legitimate twenty thousand in the movie business, and we gave him the script and they never made the movie. Uh, recently, he died. I'm trying to think. God, I forget the name now. His name, very famous director. Um, I can't think of his name, but. Yeah, he was nominated for Academy Awards, and he was the real deal. So then I started working with Marduk, and we did a couple more scripts. And I sort of graduated away from him. I had my own ideas about stuff. And that's how I started in Hollywood. Um, it wasn't it wasn't easy, though. That, that's a tough place, you know. And But it was a lot of fun working, working with a guy like that who also had a lot of stories. So did you go to your movie premiere? And what was it like having a movie come out about your life? Oh, that. Well, you know, I got involved with a whole group of nice people, young actors, about 20-some years ago. And there was a gal, she read the script. She said, this is a terrific script. I had wrote the Sinatra Club maybe 125, 130 pages. And she read it, and she's, wow, this is real. Let's have a reading. So um, they created a reading at the Marilyn Monroe Room uh, at the, at the uh, famous theater in, on, in Santa Monica. And as they read, we had some really good actors there. Guy came up to me who was in The Godfather, said, Carmine Caridi, his name was, you know, this is terrific. He's you were in the life. I go, yeah, the dialogue is sparkling. It's great. So... You know, after the reading, it took a long time to get people interested in putting up money because mob movies don't make a lot of money, by the way. They don't make money like, you know, like buddy movies or girly movies or, you know, you know those type of movies, high adventure. But it took years to get a little bit of money. Finally, when we got some money, I met a director guy and he said, oh, we got to cut the script. There's too many pages. Once we started to cut the script, the whole theme of the movie changed. And at that point, I just wanted to see it get made. Yes, we finished the movie. We had a screening at the DGA. A lot of people came. I had fun meeting a lot of the stars. 
And at that point, we were in recession, 2009. So it was really difficult to get a distribution deal. And uh, the movie went to, I think it went to Redbox. It wasn't a, it wasn't a theatrical release because the movie sort of lost, you know, some of the... I had started to write a movie about this guy Gotti I knew and how he became who he was. The movie didn't stay there. It moved to a different point of view. It was okay. I let the director do what he want with it. And the funny part was when we got the movie screened, I met this woman that was an agent. And I said, hey, let me do a book on the Sinatra Club. So we did the opposite. We had a movie that was completed. And we got a book deal, <laughs> which, which was Simon, Simon and Schuster, you know. Yeah. And that worked, that worked out. Yeah. What's your life like now, Sal? My life now is much different. You know, I mean, I still have a lot of desire to reveal stories. I mean, much like I work with Adrian, uh, I think the public would like to know the, the early genesis of, of the mob and what really took it down. It's almost like a mirror of America. I mean, you know, we are in a different place today, as you know, and I would like to talk about the prison system, the criminal justice system that needs a lot of change. You know, really, we put the wrong people in jail. The focus is, uh, you know, the focus is putting people of color in jail when, in fact, they should have just as good, you know, legal representation. I mean, I, a lot of, I did a lot of tricks in courts and attorneys and yeah, there's a lot to say about that. Like you, I mean, what you saw. I mean, in that place in Arizona, my God. No wonder you spent so much time researching. I mean, really. Yeah, I, I've written a lot of books about the uh, mass incarceration, private prisons, war on drugs. Right. Uh, they should be locking up the guys who harm women and kids. Yeah. But they get, the, they get the slaps on the wrist. Yeah. You know, I, I was talking to a to a detective not long ago who knew, knew me and stuff. And he would call me on and off and he said, you know, I met you 15 years ago. He was in charge of getting that guy, Charles Caniglia, if you ever read about that sicko. And I said, his name was Steve. I said, Steve, you know, if I had anything to say, <clears throat> I would change the structure of convicted murderers. You go, how? Well, look, these guys go to jail. They got a telephone in there. They managed to get one. They got computers in there. They got food in there. They got a commissary. They can get ice cream, right? Uh, they can get more in the prison today and live a better life than they are out on the street because they don't even have to worry about laundry. I go, I would make sure that convicted murderers would go to one specific space, somewhere in the United States where there would be no luxuries. They would have to work every day for their food. I mean, take a guy like Scott Peterson. He killed a woman that was pregnant with a baby. He should have no luxuries. Okay? So that's one of the things I see at the top. Of course, the ACLU would be up my booty, you know, saying, oh, that's cruel, unusual punishment. I see murder as different. That's the one crime I never participated in. Mm -hmm. and, and, all, and the adults who abuse kids should be thrown in with them as well. Let, let's well, see what happens. <laughs> look at the movie that's hot now. 
the sound of freedom. Yeah, I Come just on, watched it. it. Just it's watched telling, it. it. Isn't it telling us something? Oh, my blood was boiling all the way through it, man. My heart broke for that father of those kids. Yeah. I think I lost you guys. Can you hear us out? Yeah, I yeah, can I hear can. you. Okay. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, all right, Sal. Well, huge thank you for coming on then. Do you guys want to let the viewers know where they can find what you're doing and support your work and et cetera? Yeah, yeah. Um, sure. me, and, me and Sal, we got our show. We got a YouTube channel. It's called Invest in Yourself Podcast and A Lifetime of Mafia Tales. So I have two separate podcasts that I do. One I do by myself and then another one that I do with Sal and we cover his history with the mafia and then as well other guys that were involved with the mafia. But again, uh, we do uh, also have our Patreon channel as well that people can subscribe to and get exclusive interviews with me and Sal uh, that you wouldn't get on YouTube as well as uh, doing live Q and A's, bringing people on and, and you can text Sal on there as well. So you can personally, you know, talk to him, speak to him and whatever like that. And then the other thing that I'll promote as well is we'll put our website where you can find cards that people played like ma mafia guys played in the Sinatra club South club that he had made like John Gotti, Tommy D Simone, Foxy, all, all the people that he was talking about today, Henry Hill, you know, all these people, you know, Sal has them. We're selling them 10 bucks a piece on the website for each card. And then uh, an autographed of Sal's book, the Sinatra club is on there as well. Uh, Sal, you got anything you want to promote? Got or a, I got another book that's going to hit the publishers September, which is a whole different take, Sean. It's really, about the legitimate life that I started afterwards and how I worked at going straight and never once going back. I mean, that, that's a different type of story. But I would enjoy a trip to, uh, to the UK. Yeah, I'll speak to my guys about that and let's see what we can do. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. You could be a great moderator. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. All right, viewers, hope you've enjoyed this as much as me. Please let us know in the comments what you think and... Check out these guys' links in the description box. Check out the book, check out the movie, and please support their work. Take care wherever you are in the world watching this. We will see you next time.